Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Today, and Finance, Final 240 for Spring Semester uh, 2023. That, uh, I encourage you to get your uh, notebooks out. We're going to do some Excel today. Now, as far as that uh, Excel uh, crash course goes, I was asked, well, when is that due? Well, you have the whole semester to do it, to get it done. Don't drag it out. But some people can just fly through it, and other people, it takes them more, more time. I, I saw um, some, uh, so they say it takes, it's an eight hours. But I've seen people take 20, 25 hours to do it. So you have, don't wait to do it. And I thank you for all those. I'm surprised I got a lot of enrollment for that, which is good for you, good for our credentials as a university to be able to say we've got this many people who are now certified in Excel and all that good stuff. <clears throat> so by all means, if, uh, if you haven't signed up, I encourage you to do so. It's not required, it's extra credit. And the three points, whenever you and also, make sure you get a screenshot. They're, they're send, they'll send me a report, but I, I'd rather I have a backup. So once you finish it and you see your final score and your certificate, do a screenshot for me as well, just to make sure I know you're, you finished it. Now, today is uh, free cash flow. And I encourage you to follow along with me in your Excel, in your, note, in your notebook, uh, because uh, this is, and this is actually kind of like stupid pet tricks. You've probably seen most of what I'm going to do here. I'm just showing you some of what we do in the actual use of Excel in business, uh, some little tricks along the way, but it's pretty standard stuff. For heaven's sake, this, can, this, this subject, the math in it, can be some of the most rigorous or drive you crazy. But at the same time, if you do it in Excel and you don't ask too many questions like why, it actually works and you just get to comfortable with it and then you begin to see what's behind it. But for before we do that, just a quick look at the numbers for the day. And we've had, a, we've had quite a rally going on here. I mean, it, the day was down. It was just a grouchy day. But now here at the end, uh, towards the end of the day, it's starting to really show a bull market uh, again. Uh, the Dow up the least, only 0.18%. Interestingly, it was down the most uh, earlier in the day. And now it's up the least. And then the S&P 500, Dow is up only about 0.18%, whoop-dee. But then the S&P 500 is blowing straight up to 1.10%. And of course, the riskiest uh, poor, uh, stuff, the NASDAQ, is up almost 2%. And it was down. And so the early, the early uh, trading grouchiness had just disappeared. And we're back into the bull market again. And I mean, that's good news. And there's even more good news. Look at the price of oil, crude. 
it has broken through the lower neckline and now it's trading below 77 a barrel. And I mean, even the, the professionals who watch this are a little surprised where the oil, uh, the tankers are pulling lots of oil. It's in the pipelines, refineries. So you will definitely see the price of gasoline sliding backwards here over the next week or so. And that's good news because that keeps our economy growing uh, as energy prices are fairly low. And uh, so the rest of the world is in a recession where it's teetering on the brink. We're not. And all the naysaying you hear for, see in some of the news reports, the, the uh, numbers just don't support it. There's a lot of bullish sentiment, optimism. And so that's good news for you for internships and careers that you will be searching for over the next couple of months. Uh, by all means, go out there with a strong position. They need people and the economy is rolling. Good news. Now, interestingly enough, going over here, gold and silver. Gold had a spike there, and I'm not sure, but so did silver. The metals kind of had a rally. They were down, uh, they, they, they were just kind of punching around, but now they've both come up, so there's some money going to that. Here's the interesting one. Bond yields are down, so bond prices are up. Now, we've got the equities, money going into equities, money going into metals, money going into bonds, that's money that was on the sidelines. And it's now it's, it's getting into the hustle and flow of investments all through it. So this is what we would call a broad-based rally. And I mean, it's not just even a broad-based equities rally. This is a rally across the board. So. I mean, I don't know what's making everyone so happy today, but it's good news for anyone who's doing this kind of stuff for investing purposes. Now, going over here and having a quick look over, Tokyo started out last night in a very bullish position as the bell opened, but it just slid down to virtually nothing. By the end, it was pretty much flat from where it had closed the day before. So, I mean, uh, Asia is just not in a very good mood. But then London, London started up and then it swung. And by the end, you had it down. But notice here, see that right there? That was a rally before the bell. And it was a rally off the low. In other words, at near the very end of trading over in London, which ended just a few minutes ago, if I'm not mistaken, the, uh, the bulls were trying to take charge again. But then, interestingly enough, when the sun rose on the East Coast here in the United States, everyone was down. But then, boy, that's a, that's a hell of a spike there at the end. Hmm. Interesting. Let me show you something. Let me show you how to be stupid. Yes. Wait, what? Where? What went up $200? Uh, oh, no, you don't. You are not going to get me into the crypto market. Do I look that stupid? No, no, I'm not even. Okay. Will you stop it? 
yes, the cryptos are coming back. They, I mean, technic, uh, the technical term for what happened to crypto investors is they took an ass bath. Uh, they, they just got creamed. They were beaten into the ground. I mean, I, I, have, uh, I, I have NFTs and, uh, that, I, that I'm selling. And of course, in order to have NFTs, you have to have cryptocurrency for the gas fees. In other words, for the blockchain to certify that this is legit. And so I, my, my gas fees money just went to nothing. It was Ethereum. And so, but the reality is, your lives are going to be more and more dominated by things that happen in the blockchains. But we try, we're going to try our best to make it so you don't see it. It'll look like everything's the same as it's always been. Your ATMs will work the same. Your contracts for homes and all of that and for bank accounts will all seem to be the same, except that they won't be. It will be fundamentally different underneath. Part of blockchain, cryptocurrency is an example of a blockchain structure. But there's so much more to it. But crypto is part of it, and it's just a part of the world that we're going to live in. Within about 20 years, we will probably have, we'll have dollars. We always will have dollars. But we will be, a lot of our transactions will be in a kind of cryptocurrency that is issued by the government. We, they're already playing around with it, talking about it doing all of the infrastructure set up so it'll come in your lifetime. So then I will talk to you about crypto. But right now, I know you're kind. You try to get me into those scams on Twitter. Yeah. What is it with people? You know, would you like to earn money on cryptos and uh, on the uh, Forex? I can help you do it. Get away from me, you weirdo. You know, they DM me all the time, that and those weird ladies. But... Uh, uh, some weirdo out of India who's doing it all, and he's doing phony photographs and phony scams. But anyway, okay, here we go. Let me show you how, I w how stupid I can be as an investor. And I want you to tell me why I would have done it. And do not invest in this for God's sake. I don't want you having to crash on my couch. Okay, I just had it upholstered. Uh, here's the stock. Now, why? Okay, first of all, look at beta. Madam, is this a safe or a risky stock? Risky. Yeah, it is technically risky in the category AF. It is that risky, okay? Now, look one line down, and what do you see about the P.E. ratio? No, you're looking at the EPS. Look at the P.E. Um, if you want to call for some help, you can. Oh, it is a Very undervalued. This has extraordinary upside potential, and that's confirmed. Look at the price range over the last 52 weeks on this stock. Right now it's at $4.01. It has been as low as $3.97. I'm sorry, $3.60 and as high as $12.36. 
So in other words, this thing is shown potential to be three times what it's worth, what it's selling at right now. <clears throat> and something really weird, going back to you, what does that EPS tell you? Is this a profitable or a losing company? Profitable. This company makes $3.68, I'm sorry, $1.09 a share. What's weird is that its dividend is $5.11. It's paying more in dividend than it has to pay to the shareholders. That is as weird as you can get. In other words, this company is digging into its old retained earnings to keep its dividend up there uh, up high. That would tell me that the insiders, the board of directors, and the executive management is pretty sure that they're going to refill those coffers of that retained earnings, even though they're depleting it by paying a dividend that's higher than what they made for the year, they seem to be showing that they think it's going to come back. So on that basis, this is a uh, it's a stupid investment because it's so risky, and there's a higher risk, higher expected return. And I am leveraging that risk because I'm not even buying the stock. I'm buying a derivative, which is a multiple of the risk. But that gives you an idea of what you can do and how these numbers are used by professionals like me. We actually look at these numbers and this is how we trade. We don't do, some of us do, like I said, real fancy, weird ass stuff and all that. But I will tell you one more thing. Look at the one year. Declining tops and declining bottoms. But look right here. If I drew a, a summary line through those, it's trying to break that neckline on the down. And I am suspecting, and notice that these declining bottoms, they're not declining over this intermediate. This is a one-year chart. They're actually flat. So we're coming to a cross here within a couple of weeks. And if it breaks to the upside, it's got a lot of room. It could, I mean, $12 is someplace it could find. This is how we think. That's what I'm trying to get you to begin to think in these terms, the way we do it. We don't need others to advise us. We can look for ourselves with our own eyes. Let me take you on a little bit of a visit here. I'm going to pull up a couple of companies just quickly to look at them, just to keep you fresh. The first one I'll do is Lockheed Martin. Does anyone know Lockheed Martin? What is it? Yeah, you do. What is it? Absolutely, it's a war machine. They build the engines of war. And one thing you can be assured of is that war is always good business, always. Uh, in, in bad times, even then, it's even more likely that we'll have a war. But, okay, looking at this stock, is this a safe or a risky stock? Safe. Like I said, there's always war. It's going to keep going, and its sales are around the world, and it gets better and better at making engines of conflict. And so it's a safe stock. Now, as far as, Madam, P.E. ratio, what do you see with the P.E. ratio? So what does that tell you? 
No, you're looking at the EPS again. <laughs> it's, it's slightly undervalued. It's under, it's, it's under 30, so that price is a little lower. The numerator is a little lower than it might be. So it may be a little undervalued at the current, at, at the current position. And I can see that, okay, I have a, a god. Look at that bid-ask spread. That's, that's a 463.37 on the bid, 463.82 on the ask. So that's a 45 cent spread. Now look though at the volume. Do you see how light the volume is compared to the 52 week average? That's why. There's just not a lot of trading, so that's what causes that spread to open. If everyone, all the market makers are trading a lot in the stock, they don't need a lot of coin for each uh, flip. But in this case, because there's hardly any, there's very little trading, it's a light trading day, you're going to see that bid-ask spread open. In other words, if I wanted to buy this stock, I would pay $463.82 a share. If I want to sell it, I would get only $463.37. So that bid-ask spread is putting you in the hole. As soon as you buy it, you're down 45 cents a share right off the bat. So, I mean, you just kind of look at those things. In a case like this, I probably would avoid. The problem, of course, though, is that if the volume picks up tomorrow, that probably means there's buying activity in a bull market. And so I'm not going to save myself anything by waiting for that spread to close. It pays... A <laughs> this company is hella profitable. Twenty-one sixty-six a share, uh, per share. In other words, the total income, net income, divided by the number of shares outstanding. That's insane. That's great. This is a great kind of company, uh, and it pays an absolutely sweet dividend of twelve dollars a share. So, in other words. If you put in $463.89, you're pretty assured that you're going to get at least a 2.61% return on your investment through the dividend. Now, I'm going to do that little trick again. Like I said, I keep doing something until you begin to get kind of comfortable with it. I'll say, okay, suppose that Yahoo's right. In a year, Lockheed Martin LMT is going to be at a price of $482.81 per share. So in a year, 482.81 divided by the current price per share, well, I buy it at one year previous, 463.89. And then I've got a minus one. That's what you always do with this. And that tells us that Yahoo is saying your capital gain will be 4.07%. Whoops. Crap, 4.07 percent. I'll have to. I did, forgot. To do okay, so uh, 4.07 percent. Now you would add to that the dividend yield. What you get from the dividend, 2.61 percent. So your total holding period yield, your capital gain percent plus your dividend percent of what you paid, you get. I said you get, let's try that again. Uh, 
God, I'm, I'm, I so suck at math. Plot 4.07 plus 2.61%. So your total holding period, one year annual return would be 6.68%. Not spectacular, but you shouldn't expect it to be because this is a low risk stock. Low risk, low expected return. High risk, high expected return. So no, this one isn't going to make you rich overnight. But if you're a conservative investor or a defensive investor and you want a company that's just going to keep on rolling, there's no chance at all that this company is going to go tap city, here's an investment for you. Now let's take us over one more and I'm going to do AMD, American Micro Devices. Does anyone know AMD? It's essentially a competitor for Intel. It's, they build those central processing chips. And uh, they, they're scrappy. They fight very hard for position. They've got some innovations. They're, uh, they're in the, they've got works on a, um, a uh, chip that will also handle video at the same time. It's a dual chip. They're working with NVIDIA on that. I think they are. And of course, oh my God, look at one day. Do you see it? Was that a good day for AMD? Yes, that was a good day, up almost 13%. God, why didn't I do something with that? Okay, however, okay, what do you see as far as the risk goes? Is this a safe or a risky stock, ma'am? Yes, yeah, this is really risky. This is up there almost 2.00. In other words, in a, in a well-diversified portfolio, this thing is going to, on average, swing twice as much as the market itself would. So that's risky. Also, notice the P-E ratio. This thing is overvalued, definitely. And that's not stopping it, though. It's on its way up uh, at 54 that price is pretty darn steep compared to what it probably should be. Go. What's the overvalue now? I look at 30. Now, some will say 25, some will say 30, 40, but I consider 30 to be a good place. That would say that the price it, relative to the earnings is about what it should be. You're near intrinsic value of the stock. At 51, the price divided by the earnings, the price is higher than it should be. So that would be an overvalued stock. If I saw a stock that was at a price earnings ratio of five, that price has got a lot of room that it can come up. The numerator can come up a lot and you'll st it, 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 before it gets to the point where it's at intrinsic value. I look at the PE ratio as sort of like a poor person's uh, attempt to look at intrinsic value relative to the actual market price at a given time. And I see here that this one is definitely overvalued, but that's not stopping the market right now. The market is pushing this up. I'd be a little bit afraid of this stock right now because it had a strong, strong up day. And that just made the stock price, it was a buying frenzy is what was going on. There was probably some really good news about the company that came out. And when you've got a, it's already over. At this point, well, I should buy in. Look at what it did. Don't ever do that. 
by the time you would react to something like this, it's probably over. Uh, I mean, jumping in, that, that's like jumping into the ocean after the wave has come and you crash your head into the coral reef because it's already come through this rally. And as you can see, see how, do you see how it's already topped over now? So it's probably too late to grab this. You'd have to grab this real quick. And sometimes you can get the rumor early in the day. I heard nothing about AMD. And so I missed the ball on this one quite a bit. If I look over the year, the year to date, oh, actually though, you know what? This son of a bit, this thing has had a 52 week high of a 132.96. So it does have some upside potential though, still. I mean, this is one of those, if I can't see clearly what's going to happen, I'm not going to do. Notice something. See these declining tops and it broke the neckline? And see those rising bottoms? Yeah, this probably does have some more price room up on the upside, but I'm not, I've already done one stupid thing for the week, so I'm going to stay away from it from now on. <clears throat> but anyway, I'm doing this so that you can see how we think and you can begin to think for yourself instead of going to places like uh, to geniuses that are on TV or on the internet. And you can begin to think for yourself about what it is that you're seeing on these numbers. We're all seeing the same numbers and you see them through your own eyes, you might have a better view than some of the geniuses. Now, here's what I'm going to do. And I want you to follow with me on uh, how I'm going to walk through to get to where I want to be. I'm going to look at Walmart, and the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to do scc.gov. Now, the filings. You go here to filings, company filing search. Now over here on the left is a box. You can type in the name of the company, the trading symbol, or the CIK. And again, the CIK is like a unique identifier of a security. Every stock, common stock, every preferred stock, every bond, we, they all have a CIK. I, I can't imagine knowing CIKs. The best way to do it is to type in the trading symbol. Because if you type in the name of a company, you might come up with several companies with the same name. And that can be a, I, I, my favorite example is Sears. You type in Sears, you get a whole list of companies called Sears. Many of them are subsidiaries of the parent. So you want, the best way to do it is WMT. Okay, Walmart. Now over here on the right, you'll see the 8Ks. Those are the filings for non-recurring events, something unusual happened. You click on the plus for the 10Ks. Now I'm gonna look at their last 10K. Okay, and now if you click just on the title, you'll go over to that massive document, which is useful. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna click on the filings. That little box that says filing. 
Now, you can get to the 10K from here, the paper version. You can get to all the exhibits and all that, tables and all that. What you want to do is find that little blue box up in the upper left part, and it says interactive data. You click on that. Now, what will come out is a lot of different tabs on the left menu. One of them is financial statements. If you just want to look at them, you can see them right here. But if you want the Excel spreadsheet, you find this little link up above there that says View Excel Document. And you click on that, and it will be all of the financial statements of the company. Every one of them. Dozens and dozens of them. A couple of things to say first. There are, there are just tons of them. You can find anything you want, anything from executive compensation to how much they paid for their leases to uh, their foreign operations and all that. But there's something here on this cover sheet that is useful, a couple of things. See the entity address? That is authoritative. You may very well run into a class or two where they say, what is the official name of the company? It will be right there. See that entity registration name? That is the actual name. You, can, you could Google or Bing or whatever else you, Wikistupedia, those are not the authoritative. This is, remember that what the, they tell the SEC is legally mandated as accurate by the Securities Act of 1933 and these, as amended and all that. So its name is Walmart INC period. This is also the legal address. So you might have, a, have some class where they say, what is the address of the company? That is authoritative. And even if you had a professor, well, I've got a different name. No, this is the one they reported to the SEC. So this is the one that is the legal name and all of that kind of. Where, where are they located? Well, in Bentonville, Arkansas. That is the fact. So this cover page has some information that would help you out for some research projects you might have to do. But now we're going to go over here. Now, I, now I assume that you have some Excel knowledge, so I'm probably going to insult your intelligence because I'm going to be pretty pedantic here but I do want to walk you through some of the things that you do in, a, in this. First of all, we will need, for what I'm going to do today, we're going to need the income statement, the balance sheet, and the statement of cash flows. So I'm going to scoot those all next to each other. Well, there's the, and by the way, it used to be required to use a specific name for each of these documents. Now you'll see all kinds of different names, so you have to just kind of figure out what's what. Even inside of these, even in a financial statement, it used to be we all had to use the same words. Now that's not the case. We also all had to use the same report lines. Now that's not the case, and you'll see that in a minute or two here. But anyway, I've got the consolidated income. Now I've got to find the balance sheet. There it is. So now I'm going to click and hold. See, this is what irritates me. It does that every time. 
And I'm going to scoot that one over so it's next to my income statement. Because I'm going to have to chase these down. Oh, quit it. I'm going to have to I use all three of them in a single formula. So I put them together so I can get to them quickly back and forth. And then I'm going to go over here and I'm going to find the statement of cash flows. There it is. And then I'm going to slide that one over there so that it is near my other ones too. As a matter of fact, some uh, Excel jockeys I know, they'll click on all the ones they don't want and mass delete them. Just get them out of the way so that they've got a cleaner working environment. We won't do that. Now I'm going to show you another trick of the trade. I'm going to put in here between, well, I think I'll put it in here between the income statement and the balance sheet. Right click and insert a new worksheet. And I'm going to double click on its name, sheet one, and I'm going to call this scratch. This is a place where you can do your intermediate calculations, your side calculations. It's really useful, and it actually has a really weird history. It goes back to early gaming and to a weird kind of group that still exists to this day. But this scratch sheet allows you a place where you can safely do your calculations without interfering with the original documents. That's something that you'll find is a no-no. A quick story. Maybe three or four years ago, a very substantial company, the CFO, we were at a dinner, and the CFO was telling this hilarious story. Someone asked, uh, well, where is so-and-so? And she said, well, we fired him. And why did they fire him? Because he pulled up one of the core spreadsheets of the company, and he started altering the documents. Well, I liked it. I thought it should be this way, so I rearranged some things. And I did a couple of calculations someplace so people could see where. And they almost had a heart attack. No, you don't do that. And then, worse than that, he saved it. And worse than that, no one knew about it until a back of it had gone into the system to erase the, the old backup. And so it took them quite a bit of excitement to dig back through the secondary backup to find the one that he had not messed with. They fired his ass. That's why if you're working with an original document, just make a scratch sheet. And then you can do whatever you want on that sheet. Hell, you could even copy one of the uh, core sheets and put it there if you wanted to play with it. But anyway, now the scratch sheet is going to be useful for us because we're going to do our intermediate calculations there. And I'll tell you another reason for this in a few weeks. But here's the thing that we want to do. Now let's look at the income statement. First things first, we're going to have to do something to, we're going to do a repair here. You see, one thing that used to be required in uh, these worksheets was a gross income line, revenues minus cost of goods sold. Many companies don't report it anymore, 
and we really like to have that. So I'm going to put that in here. I'm going to insert a line that says gross income. That is nothing but your equals your total revenues minus your cost of goods sold. And now, you probably already know this, but if I put the, uh, highlight that cell and grab that little marker right there, I can drag it across and it will copy the formula. I don't know if you know that or not, most of you probably do. So don't hate, I'm just showing you to make sure everyone knows. Okay, so now what does this line mean? Well, this is how much of what was taken in by the company goes into the register minus paying wholesale. So this gross income line is our net after wholesale. That's useful to know, really useful. Now, as you drill down through here, and again, I'm being pedantic. I know that most of you already know this. We have these lines right here. Now, there's one line that's missing here. Some companies put it there. Some companies don't put it there. It's the depreciation expense line. Walmart doesn't. I think Target does. Um, but it's not there. It's embedded in SG&A. Now, SG&A is your expenses like your wages and salaries, your meals and entertainment, your advertising, your internet, your light bills, your utility bills. That's all in that line right there. Now, once you get there, then we get to an important line, the operating income line. Now, that line, you might see it called EBIT. You might, earnings before taxes. Used to be we all had to use the same words, and now it'll, it can be different things. Operating income is essentially how much is left after you've paid your wholesale and you've paid all of your bills. Essentially, it's sort of like what has finally done, well, how much money is left after we've taken care of our regular bills. And it's going to be important to us in finance here in just a minute. Now, let's go through this interest line. The interest expense, this is how much we paid in interest on our long-term debts, on our debts. If you have $100 million and you've got 8% you pay, then that line would be $8 million. Now, this, now, Walmart does something that's not actually, I don't see that often. They also include their payments on leases, which are, which are debts. And then they also include a line here of how much they make off their own lending to others. Now, it looks a little weird there. That's a negative. But remember that these lines are supposed to be subtracted. So this is a negative subtraction line. And they summarize them here. So this net interest expense, 1836, that would be 1674 plus 320 minus 158. 
So in other words, that's after you've paid interest and you've gotten interest, your net is that you paid $1.8 billion. Don't get confused by that. Just get around them and get down to the net interest line here. Okay, so then we pay the big one, the debt holders, those bondholders. That's that net interest. And then this line right here is income before taxes. You'll hear me and most people in our business, and you'll hear it in your lives too. We, we usually use the quick term pre-tax. Well, Walmart had pre-tax of 18.7 billion. It's our summary way, before taxes. And then we pay our last bill, that's the bill to Uncle Sugar. Okay, right there. 4.756 billion dollars in taxes. And then we come to the accounting profit right there. Consolidated net income of $15.94 billion. Let me show you something here. This belongs to the shareholders. This is the residual. This can be given to the shareholders as dividends or it can be plowed back into the company to grow the company. But that is the residual. See all these lines up here? The income statement is designed to show who has the priority. That is all of the liabilities. On, all through here, you're showing that these were taken care of and what remains belongs to the shareholders. So this is the prior claims being satisfied and down here at the bottom is the residual that is claimed by the shareholders. It's actually structured in the way that the corporate's legal structure must be. Let me show you something here. And I'm sneaking in something that we'll do formally in a couple of weeks with ratio analysis. Let me take that what they got, the shareholders got at the bottom line. $13,940,000,000. And I'm going to divide that by how much came into the registers at Walmart. 500, <laughs> well, let's take this, 572,754. In other words, for every dollar that Walmart took in, the shareholders are going to get, through reinvestment or dividends, two and a half, less than two and a half cents. That is actually a fairly low net margin. Well, that means Walmart sucks. No, it doesn't. This, is a, this company is very well off. You see, you'll see companies with 8% net margin, 20%. Wow, they're really doing good. Walmart doesn't have to do that. Walmart <clears throat> is everywhere. I mean, full disclosure, I, as I told you, I'm a Walmart hoe. As a matter of fact, I'm going there after class. So if you want to come there, we will have fun. Uh, or not. You know. It's bad. I'm there so much they actually give me the employee discount. Uh, <laughs> they really do sometimes. 
uh, I seen you here yesterday. Was that your shift? Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, okay, so where the hell was I? Okay. You see, companies that are massive all over the place, they can have low margins like this. Think about a company. Have you ever been to Aldi's? Now, I, I hate Aldi's. I go there, but I hate it. They put your food boxes on the floors, and they make you pay a quarter as a deposit for their cart. I don't need their cart. Well, maybe I do, but I'm not going to steal it. Uh, but think about all these. Their margins are ridiculously low, just like Dollar Tree. How could Dollar Tree stay in business charging you know, what they do for their stuff? It's easy, because if you're making a, net, a little bit of money off each store, just a little bit, and you've got 10,000 of them, you're making a fortune that way. And it's also even better because it's distributed. If one of your stores goes Tap City, the whole structure is going to be fine. So if one Walmart did bad, hell, the whole chain is going to be fine. If one Dollar Tree burns to the ground, who cares? It's a distributed cash flow. And that is gold, not these get-rich-quick schemes and all that. So Walmart's doing just fine, and you're going to see that when we get to what I'm going to do. One quick, a uh, little quick thing here. Let me clear this out and minimize this for a, just a minute. Let me point out to you the balance sheet. <clears throat> and again, I understand you probably already know this. You see these current assets? That is, those are the assets that are liquid. Now, I'm going to give you the formal definition of liquidity, and I caution you, if you go to the web, you'll find the wrong definition. And I will make sure that you can choose, on a multiple choice question, a wrong definition. Liquidity is the efficiency <coughs> with which an asset can be converted to another asset. Liquidity is the efficiency with which an asset can be converted to another asset. Liquidity is the efficiency with which an asset can be converted to another asset. Now you will find on the web, Investopedia, Wikistupedia, and all those places will say liquidity is the ease with which you can turn an asset into cash, which would be ridiculous because how would you define cash, the liquidity of cash, if it's part of the definition of liquidity? You have, and also ease is a, is a diffuse word. Efficiency means at the lowest cost, okay? so. Let me show you liquidity. Um, you, madam, are a, uh, work at the drive-through at McDonald's. I pull up and you say, may I help you, McPlease? And I say, why, McYes? I would like a McBurger. Well, you say, McFabulous, McPull around, and then you say, that will be one McDollar. And I blow you away, here's a McDollar. I turned 
this into a burger. Instant, well, not quite instantly, but very, see how liquid this is? But the problem is that I can't earn anything off this. High liquidity is associated with low expected return. If I keep it in my pocket, I can't do anything with it. Now, on the other hand, let us take you, madam. You are an asset, but you are a highly illiquid asset. I cannot turn you into a McDonald's meal. Well, you know, I, I suppose, you know, put you in a big blender. And, you know, but who's going to buy a McSmoothie made of you? I mean, but over your lifetime, do you see how much money you're going to make over a lifetime? That means you're highly illiquid, but the expected return is extraordinarily high. A house is a highly illiquid asset, but it we hope, you buy a house kind of hoping that you're going to get a gain on it. It's going to increase in value. That is that association of liquidity. They're inversely related. Uh, high liquidity, low expected return. So this top of the balance sheet, those current assets represent essentially, kind of roughly speaking, uh, the assets that will be converted within a year. Liquid, we say it's liquid if it's within a year. Now the sequence there, which we'll talk about uh, next week, I think it is, is in terms of just how liquid. See at the top, cash and cash equivalents, extremely liquid. And then below those, the receivables, still liquid, but not as liquid. It takes a while to get your receivables to turn into cash. And then inventories, well, that's even less liquid, but it's still, you're going to convert your inventories into something within a year. And then you've got uh, your prepaid expenses. Those are the ones where you, uh, you pay your whole year's insurance premiums at the beginning of the year, and then you chop off through monthly on them. I'm not going to get into that too much. That's getting too close to accounting. But, and then the current liabilities right here. Those are... The current liabilities, where the hell does that, oh, those are bills that are due within a year. So you're looking at the liquid portion of the financial statement here. Now, here's the thing about all this. See this income statement? It's lying to you. It has to be that way, don't get me wrong. There are a couple of things going on in here. They are taking out one of those. They are subtracting depreciation expense. There is no such thing as depreciation expense. There really isn't. You, I give you a, 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 one of, an example from my own company. A couple of years ago, when I realized I'm gonna have to go back in, have to at least supplement the landscape work with back into portrait model and glamour photography, I had to buy a top-notch high-end lens. It was $4,500. I should have brought it today to show you. It's a beauty. But that's $4,500 out of my pocket. <laughs> but I can't say I spent, on the income statement, I'm not allowed to say minus $4,500. 
I have to capitalize it and then chop that into five pieces. Now, if it was straight line, that'd be $900 a year. So that would be minus 900 every year for five years instead of right away $4,500. So right there, the depreciation expense is a myth. It is not what we care about in uh, finance, which is cash flow. Well, why don't you just take it out right away? No, I'm not going to because it still represents a tax shield to me. Because when I take away that $900, that's $900 that is not going to be taxed, uh, of revenue that's not going to be taxed. So I have to leave it in. I'm going to have to add it back after I've done the taxes and all that. But I have to recognize right off the bat that it didn't exist. Let me show you another one here. Here's, here's, one of, here's my favorite that I like to uh, bitch about. Accounts receivable. It, it was just before the pandemic, uh, the art ex exhibitions. I, my work costs, uh, it's pricey, and I see people come in. I had done it for years. I see people come in. They love what I'm doing, and they stand there, and they stare at it, but they look at the price, and they're gone. They pull out. There was a, one good example. There was one $800. It was right there. As a matter of fact, it's in my office right now if you want to see it. Stop by my office. And of course, you know, what I had done, I had made a credit facility so that the person was looking at it. And I knew that that person had already looked at the price. And of course, I come up and I go into my act as the brooding, uh, demented, sad artist. Uh, looking for hope in my life and finding nothing but pain. You really like that, don't you? You feel what I feel. Oh, yes, I do. But I can't afford it. Well, I've got to, you can pay 200 now and the other 600 over 12 months. Really? Why, yes. Uh, you see what happened? But what really happened, the damn accountants want me to put $800 in my revenue. And I'll be taxed on $800, even though I didn't get $800. I got $200. At least I can afford a meal at uh, Denny's Grand Slam with a pie. I like pie. Dean Winchester and I are that way. Okay. You don't, probably don't know that reference, so never mind. Some of you are smirking, so okay. But look, do you understand that when accounts receivable goes up, I've got to subtract away that boost in uh, accounts receivable because it didn't happen. The revenue I put, $800, is not what free cash flow happened. So I have to subtract that out. On the other hand, if I get a bill for $400, let's say, and I decide I'm not going to pay it, I still put it on my income statement uh, as an expense. So I am overstating revenues and I'm uh, overstating my expenses. What we do is we have a, a measure. It's called net operating working capital. Now I'm going to go over here to the scratch sheet and I'm going to show you how to do this. Okay? I'm going to put in 2022 and 2021 so I can get two years of data. Now the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to current assets. Now what I'm going to do here, and this is why I, now you're going to see why I scooted those sheets together. I'm going to go here to the 2022 column and I'm going to say equals, and then I'm going to go over here 
to the balance sheet and I'm going to say what were my current assets. That was B6, no, B7. And there it is on my scratch sheet. Now I'm going to copy it over here to my, so I get the 2021. And I'm going to do the same thing with the current liabilities. And then I'm going to go and I'm going to say, okay, that equals, I'm going to go back to that balance sheet and I'm going to grab my two current liabilities. First one, and then I just copy it over with the little cross, and there I am. Now, net operating working capital. <coughs> and then I can just say equals that line minus that line. So Walmart, let me put this in perspective. Walmart had about 6 billion, 6.3 billion more in current liabilities than it had to pay them in current assets. That's all it says. I'm going to copy that over and I'm, there's a, something very important that's going to happen here. Do you see how their net operating working capital went down from 2021 to 2022. That's a good, that's good news. That's actually positive free cash flow. They gathered their accounts receivable and faster and they dipped their accounts payable, probably. They're actually managing to do this. In my short-term financial management course, we looked at this Walmart, and this was the first thing I showed them. Walmart is deliberately doing this because this frees up cash. As net operating working capital goes down, free cash flow goes up. Let me repeat that. As net operating working capital goes down, free cash flow goes up. So what I do here is I'm going to say, what was the change in net operating working capital from 2021 to 2022? That would equal what it was in 2022 minus what it was in 2021. They went down 3.7 billion dollars. And the, your natural reaction to that would be, well, that kind of sucks. No, it doesn't. That is good news because they actually freed up 3.7 billion dollars in cash by collecting the receivables faster, by paying their bills slower. That's how you do that. Now, if it doesn't click with you what I just said there. Do it just like a mechanical exercise. Just do what I'm doing here. 
It'll come to you later if you don't see it right off the bat why this is great. You see, because companies can deliberately open up their free cash flow by accelerating their, the clearing out their, uh, clearing out their current uh, assets and by slowing down their current liabilities. That is a way to uh, clear out, that's a way to increase your free cash flow. Walmart didn't do this by accident. You, it, it is clearly their strategy. Now, not all companies want to do this because it is scary, because you're, you're postponing your bills. Well, that's not, your suppliers are going to be pissed off, but it's Walmart. What are they going to do, kick Walmart in the toe? And you're accelerating your collection of receivables? Well, that means that you don't get as many customers because you're accelerating how, how soon they have to pay. So what? It's Walmart. If, you, if Walmart says, we used to collect, we used to have you pay us in a month, now we want it in two weeks, what are you going to do? Say, no, I'm not going to do business with Walmart anymore? Like hell you're not. Okay, so that is the backdrop for what I'm going to show you now. And it, it ends, fortunately, it's kind of merciful how quickly it ends here, is that our holy grail is not net profit. In our business and in real life, free cash flow is our golden standard. Now, the free cash flow, you're going to take the revenues minus the expenses, otherwise, in other words, EBIT or operating income, you know, whatever you want to call it. And then you're going to multiply that by one minus the current marginal tax rate of that company. Now, historically, since the 1990s, that was 39%. Hell, before that, it was 70%. I mean, clear back to when I was a kid, and then it was cut to 39%. And then in 2017, a the conservative president and the conservative legislature cut it down to 21%. So this, I mean, it is, it's among the lowest in the world right now. Hence why we have these terrible budget deficit problems. But that's what it is now. So in other words, we start with operating income times one minus the tax rate. We call that net operating income after taxes. No path. And you might be saying, oh, wait a minute, fat boy. What, what, where is the interest expense in here? That's right, we don't care. It's not an operating cost. Boy, if we pay our interest on that bond, that'll make our workers produce a lot more bullshit. It's not operating. We will know if we can pay our interest expense when we get to the free cash flow. We'll know if we can pay a dividend. We'll know all of that when we get to free cash flow. We'll know if we can go out and have a party and have a meal at uh, Morton's. Or, 
or not. So we don't care about it unless it's operating, unless it's actually functioning to get us to the point where we can see whether we're healthy or not. Okay? You get up in the morning, sir. You see if your legs work, your arms work. You turn your head this way and this way. You check your eyes and all that. Do you go in, well, that, that, that gland right there kind of supposed to be doing something every few days. No. That's what we do. We look at, can you survive the day? Okay, now the next thing we're going to do is we are going to add back that depreciation expense because it didn't ever exist. It never existed. We have it up here because it's going to protect us from some taxes. But once we've gotten that out of the way, we've got to add it back because that didn't happen. In my case, there was no $900 that ever went out of my pocket. $4,500 went out of my pocket. So we have to add back the depreciation expense, and then we have two last ones. The actual what we spent, capital expenditures. Now I'll show you where you get that off the statement of cash flows. It's just the bottom line of, of your investment, of your uh, uh, investments. And then we subtract net the change in net operating working capital. Now you can see that that's negative for Walmart, so minus a negative is going to be in addition to free cash flow. So here we go. Over here, I'm going to put my tax rate so that there's an old rule. Don't put numbers into a formula if you can possibly avoid it. Because if you want to change a number, you don't want to dig back through your formulas where the number was. You want a place where it was referenced so you can just change it once. So now let's go and do this, okay? I'm going to start with operating income. And then I'm going to pull in my uh, capital expenditures. and my change in that operating working capital. And what I'll get free cash flow is this beauty right here. Control B, whoops, Control B. The hell? Okay, anyway, operating income equals, and I'm gonna go over here and get operating income where the hell is it? Right here. I'm going to get capital expenditures. Now here's where you go. Here's where you go for it. Now you've got to be careful about something because on the statement of cash flows, it's going to be reported as a negative. But you're already minusing it, so you've got to do something about that. Right here, see it? Uh, where the hell? Investing activities. You find the bottom line of that one. It's right here. But the problem is that it's already being reported as a negative there. So you are going to want to take the absolute value of that. Otherwise, you would be minusing a negative here, and you don't want to do that. So just remember, when you pull the capital expenditures line, 
you make it absolute value. And then the change in net operating working capital was right there. Whoops. What the heck? Wait a minute. Oh, there it is. Okay. Sorry about that. Equals. I guess I'm not going to be able to do that. Oh, well. And now free cash flow equals operating income, that line, times 1 minus your tax rate right there, plus, now I need to get my depreciation expense. That's from the consolidated statement of cash flows. Where in the heck? Consolidated statement of cash, there it is. Sorry. Depreciation and amortization right up there. And then minus your capital expenditures. What in the hell is going on here? Your capital expense. Your capital expenditures. Wait a minute. Let me kill this. Do it one more time. I screwed up there. Equals operating income times one minus your tax rate plus your depreciation expense. Minus your capital expenditures. Minus your change in net Okay. Minus your change in net operating working capital. I think I did, I made a mistake in there somewhere. But one way or the other, positive free cash flow. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to upload this to VeggieNet tonight or tomorrow. This actual, what I've done here. And I'll make a correction. I think there's something a little wrong in that one. But anyway, then you'll have that to work with. And other than that, that's all I'll have for you today. I thank you.